Today, we're continuing our discussion of space biology and hashtag space omics. And we're very lucky to have Dr. Tejasweeney Mishra joining us, who is a co-first author of the original NASA twin study, which is a cornerstone piece of scientific work for space biology and space omics. In this study, a pair of identical twins was studied where one stayed on Earth and one was sent into space for a long-duration spaceflight, which enabled a true comparison of the impact of long-term spaceflight on the human body. Today, we'll be learning about this study with our guest, Dr. Tejaswini Mishra, who is a research scientist at the Stanford University School of Medicine and the co-chair of the NASA Gene Lab Animal Working Group. Dr. Mishra works on bioinformatics, precision health, longitudinal data, multi-omics profiling, wearables, and space biology, which just so happens to make her a perfect guest for this podcast. So welcome, Dr. Mishra, and thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, do you mind starting by just filling in the gaps of my very brief introduction to this groundbreaking work you were involved in for the NASA twin study? Like, What were the main goals of the study? How was the study designed to be able to understand prolonged spaceflight in a really controlled way? Absolutely. So till date, about 559 people have flown into space and NASA wants to send now more people to the moon and to, to Mars. And so we've been doing these really short missions to the ISS, which are, you know, Earth reliant, and it takes a few hours to get there and get back. But then when you want think about going to the moon, the mission durations are going to be longer, hopefully a few months, and the transit time is just a few days. And then when you think about Mars, the mission durations are going to be two to three years just because of the travel time and how long it takes to get into the right alignment for orbit. And so the return to Earth can take months. And so humans are going to need to be in space for two to three years. And that was kind of the background of our study is what happens to astronauts who go into space for durations longer than your typical ISS mission, which can be, you know, a few weeks or up to six months. And so Scott Kelly was one of the first American astronauts to go into space for a year. And it was just the perfect opportunity to set it up as a study to then look at what happens to him in space and to compare that with pre-flight and post-flight time points. And luckily for us, Scott Kelly had a twin brother, an identical twin brother, Mark Kelly. And so these were then the two astronauts that became our study participants. And it was actually Scott Kelly's idea to to enroll his brother in the study. Uh, You can imagine this is really amazing because you're doing this longitudinal study where the, the, the way it's set up is we're going to collect samples from this earthbound twin, Mark, and the space twin, Scott, both before flight, during flight, and during the flight, you know, Mark stays on Earth, and then post-flight as well, and then compare them to each other to figure out what are the specific changes that happen when you go into space, and do those changes persist when you come back to Earth? We included Mark as a genetic control, and because he's an identical twin, really the only differences we're looking at at this point is the difference of the environment meaning Scott traveling to space and Mark staying on Earth. And those are the two differences between the two subjects. And so that allows us to really control for just for the genetics and just really focus on the environmental aspects. Mark is also a retired astronaut with some amount of spaceflight experience, not as much as experience as Scott does six months to Mark has two months of experience, but he still is a really, really good control because of his previous spaceflight experience. And so the way we set up this study is to collect all these samples from these two brothers. And the samples we were collecting included blood, urine, 
stool, saliva. We also took buccal swabs. We also did a bunch of imaging experiments and all of these were done in cognitive testing and all of these were done on both of the brothers, basically. And then we kind of compared the results to each other. Yeah, that really is totally amazing. And of course, in science, you want to see if you can try to have kind of your your control for everything versus your experimental group. And it's almost just mind-blowing to me that this situation even happened where you have these two super similar twin brothers who both happen to be astronauts that you can actually use to, to test this. How similar were they to each other in like the baseline ways? Were they really similar to where it was almost like an identical human being on Earth? Or were there some differences or... You know, this is a great question. And this is this is kind of leading into why we do longitudinal profiling. Like we could have just taken, you know, one time point pre-flight, one time point in-flight and one post-flight and be done with it and maybe not even need a control. But you no, know, people, one thing they've observed in our previous research, I work on, you know, precision health, personalized medicine. We do a ton of longitudinal profiling and monitoring. And one of the things we've observed is every person's, you know, personal molecular omics landscape or personal molecular omics profile is much more similar to themselves than to that of other people. So you have your own, you know, healthy baseline and there's deviations from that healthy baseline when you're sick, when you're getting an immunization or whatever. And if you compare your data to that of, you know, a group of other people going through the same stuff, again, getting infections, having an immunization, maybe exercising or going through a diet change, like weight gain or weight loss intervention, you still look more similar to yourself than to other people. I mean, and these are some really big interventions, weight gain, weight loss, exercise. And we still see that people are more similar to themselves. The only change that is really big enough in your body to, to make you look more similar to other people, guess what? It turns out to be pregnancy. So women in their first week or second week of pregnancy or third, fourth, you know, sixth, seventh week, they look more similar to each other based on the timing of pregnancy than, you know, just to themselves. And so the biggest biological sort of paradigm where we see big changes in your profile is pregnancy. Otherwise, people just look similar to themselves. And so this is really the setup that led to the study. And throughout the study, we kept observing that, you know, whether you look at microbiome data or methylation data, whatever data you're looking at, Mark is much more similar to himself and Mark's data are comparable to Mark and Scott's Scott is also much more similar to himself. And so it made sense then to collect these samples longitudinally with multiple time points in the pre-flight and the in-flight and the post-flight period so we could compare each individual to themselves and to have a number of time points of statistical comparison. Okay, that makes sense. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go through... So we've outlined the study. We've got these two astronauts, not totally identical to each other as, as we've now learned. And one goes into space. And then there's just all these different data types that get collected for both of these people. And then what changed in each of these, of these data types and what all data types were there. So can you explain maybe quick, briefly, just kind of list out what are all the different types of data that was collected for this study? Yeah, Absolutely. As I said, we collected a whole bunch of different types of samples. So there was blood, stool, saliva, and then buccal swabs, urine. And so from these samples, we also separated out some different cell populations from the blood and plasma. But the different assays we did were, you know, we did do genome sequencing. 
we looked at gene activity, so RNA sequencing or transcriptomics, and that was using sequencing. Also, methylation, which is you know changes to the epigenome, and that was done using whole genome bisulfide sequencing. And then we also looked at proteomics and metabolomics data, which is you know, changes in protein levels. Metabolites are small molecules that are sort of informative about the physiology of your body. They're kind of sometimes the end products of biochemical reactions. And so we looked at both of those using mass spectrometry assays. We also looked at telomere length using telofish. And that was done using fluorescence in situ hybridization, which uses little DNA probes attached to fluorescent reporters. And so you can, those then go bind to the telomere and then you can detect that using fluorescence. We also did a bunch of different biochemistry, clinical biochemistry assays. And we also looked at the microbiome, the gut microbiome, and that was using 16S sequencing. And there were some cognition assays where you're, for example, asked to you do these like cognition exercises, you know, can you identify the common pattern in this set of images, for instance, and then you look for speed and accuracy and you can compare all of those metrics, pre-flight, in-flight and post-flight and see whether, you know, are you faster or slower when you're in-flight or are you accurate or not? We also did a bunch of imaging and so ocular, there was cardiovascular ultrasound and ocular imaging assays to look at effects on the eye and as well as cardiovascular effects using the ultrasound. Yeah, amazing. I mean, this is just such a amazing study in so many different ways and the comprehensiveness of all the things that were tested on these people would just be another another area of the incredible power of this study. You know, these people are some of the most deeply profiled people on earth right now. No one has had these many assays done on them. Yeah. (laughs) So now let's get into the main results and findings of all of these different data types. And I I feel like we could probably do like 10 episodes just like covering all of the different analyses that were done. So I've just kind of picked some notes on a few that I read through that I thought sounded interesting. And one of the things that seemed to be a main result of the paper also was that some of these things didn't really change so much when spaceflight happens. Some of them changed, but eventually returned to normal. And then some could potentially be more permanent changes. So maybe we could start with some things that like maybe didn't really change a whole lot. And, and one of the things that I had noted down was the immune response. You mentioned T cells to, it seems like was the first ever test of a vaccination in spaceflight. That's right. And that's really good news for astronauts is that they can get vaccinated in flight in the future and, you know, not really have to worry about their immune system responding very differently than it does on Earth. And so that's really great. That's something we really did not see any changes in. Another one that we didn't really see a whole lot of changes was the genome-wide means of methylation levels. We saw some very specific local changes in methylation at some spots, but you would imagine that such a big change on your body going to space in microgravity, increased radiation, that you'd experience big epigenetic changes, but we really didn't see very big changes in methylation levels associated with the space flight. So that was another thing that didn't change that we were expecting would. Okay, how about some of these that did seem to have somewhat of a perhaps shorter term change? So telomere length, for instance, I had noted down gene regulation, gut microbiome composition, body weight, and a few other attributes. You want to talk about some of those results? Yes, absolutely. 
So yeah, gene expression was kind of interesting. We did see subsets of genes that, you know, changed. They went up or down in flight, but then they went back to their pre-flight levels. But there was a subset of genes that did persist in staying altered, even at the post-flight time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, I guess. But yeah, telomere, we were really surprised to see that telomeres got longer in flight for the flight twin. And then they became shorter as, as he came back to Earth. But there were a lot more critically short telomeres for the flight twin. And typically, when you think about telomeres, you're, you think about telomeres being shorter and what that means and, you know, genome instability and cancer. Well, it, that doesn't mean that longer telomeres are good news either. Longer telomeres can also lead to genome instability. And so we're still sort of trying to understand what it means to have longer telomeres in flight. We have a few theories, but we're trying to sort of pin that down. Like, what, what does that mean for people's health? Dr. Misha, for telomeres, a lot of these different measurements that were taken, we've talked some on past podcast episodes, but we've not ever really talked about telomeres on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about the telomeres and like, yeah, how they're, how they're measured and, and the findings on that? Again, just for people that maybe don't know Absolutely. a lot about those. Yeah. So telomeres are these sort of end caps on your chromosomes, essentially. And they basically protect your DNA from uh, having too many mutations, for example. And the way we measure telomere length is by doing, for example, an assay known as telofish. You can also do PCRs, qPCRs. So telofish would be, you would take a small, you know, a DNA probe that matches to the telomere sequence and then just attach it to fluorescent reporters. And then they would hybridize essentially in, in these cells. You just put these into cells and then they hybridize inside the cell and you can see through imaging where they have hybridized and what the length is. And so you can convert that into numbers and then kind of look at the distribution across different cells, for instance, and get an idea of in this population of cells, what does the telomere length distribution look like? And how does that change when you're looking at you know, pre-flight versus in-flight versus post-flight? You can also do qPCRs to look at, amplify the specific telomeric DNA sequence and then figure out how long is it you know, in pre-flight samples compared to post-flight samples. And why would that be something that people would be interested in? So telomere length differences have been associated with genome instability. Like I was saying earlier, telomeres tend to be really short, for example, with cancer. Typically, people look at shorter telomeres, and that's where a lot of research has focused on because that's where you tend to see, that's what you tend to see with cancers. Cancers are often driven by shortening of telomeres and however longer telomeres have also been reported to be um, to contribute to genome instability. And that's something that we're trying to understand with these results. This was really unexpected for us, really, to see longer telomeres. We expected them to be shorter, but we're trying to understand what does this mean in terms of space flight, but also for the human body. Okay, so going back to some of these other changes, sorry for interrupting there. You had, for instance, gut microbiome composition, weight, and even things like carotid artery dimensions as well. Yes. So we did see, for example, the microbiome, just a you know, quick summary. So some of the microbiome changes we saw, first off, we saw that Mark and Scott have very different microbiomes. Their microbiomes are different from one another. We did see that Scott's microbiome changed when he went into space. And that could be as a result of, you know, different diet, being in a different environment, any number of things. This microbiome basically returned sort of to pre-flight levels, essentially. There wasn't really any 
decrease in diversity or richness of the microbiome in Scott. And that's a good thing, although his overall diversity was lower than Mark's. And, you know, your microbiome being diverse is really generally a good thing for your body and for your metabolism. We did see that there was an altered community structure for Scott when he went into space with his microbiome, but that also sort of returned to pre-flight levels. So generally speaking, there were some microbiome changes, but they came back to kind of pre-flight levels. Okay. So moving along, unless there's anything else on the shorter term changes you want to mention. We also saw changes in the carotid artery thickness and diameter. And these, but these are also short-term changes. So typically the walls of, you know, heart walls or carotid artery walls get thicker. And as a result of that, the diameter gets smaller and that's basically what we observed. And, but these changes essentially went back to pre-flight levels, which is good news. We also saw what's called now space flight associated neuroocular syndrome. And essentially your eyeballs kind of get squished and that can have, you know, long-term impacts for astronauts on their vision. And we did see more of these choroidal folds in the flight twin. So those are some of the short-term changes that we saw. Jeez, makes me a little bit happy that I have not traveled to space and I'm not going to do that anytime soon. (laughs) I mean, overall, I think it's good news. We we didn't really see anything, you know, earth shattering that makes you feel like, oh no, we should stop all space missions. Not at all. I think overall it was mostly good news. Okay. Well, that's reassuring. So for the longer term changes, some of them that I had noted down from the paper, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So there was some gene expression level changes, increased DNA damage from like chromosomal inversions, and mentioned about the telomeres, increased number of short telomeres, and also attenuated cognitive function. Yeah, and that, that's kind of interesting. The gene expression and the telomere results absolutely track with each other. We do see increased numbers of inversions and translocations. Well, we see more translocations in flight, and then they go back down to kind of pre-flight levels. But we do see increased numbers of inversions. And you know that makes sense with increased exposure to ionizing radiation. And that's going to be a much bigger factor when you're thinking about going to the moon or going to Mars. When you're on the International Space Station, which is where Scott Kelly went, you're in low Earth orbit. You are protected by the Van Allen belts from, you know, crazy amounts of radiation. But then once you go out into deep space, you're exposed to galactic cosmic rays and solar particle events. And so you have to be really much more careful about DNA damage and you have to think more about that aspect of things. We did see differences in uh, speed and accuracy on the cognitive tests as well. But again, nothing much to worry about in terms of lasting effects. Scott's speed and accuracy levels came back to sort of pre-flight levels after he returned to Earth. Yeah. So just to be clear here, make sure I'm understanding this fully and, and for explaining everything. Basically, the cognitive test, what it's saying is you're get a little bit dumber when you go to outer space. Is that pretty much it? (laughs) You're a little bit slower and you perform less well. Yes. Which is maybe slightly concerning, maybe. I mean, all of this stuff to me sounds at least slightly concerning, but I guess the question is how concerning is it, I suppose? Yeah. I mean, you know, one big thing that astronauts always talk about when they go to space is, for example, they're afraid of being hypoxic and there are oxygen and carbon dioxide monitors on the station. We looked at that data. We didn't really see any huge drops, but people will say, for example, that they were getting hypoxic and you can have local tissue hypoxia, for example. And that's, we have obviously haven't measured that, but yeah, lack of oxygen, even temporary lack of oxygen can decrease your 
speed and accuracy on these cognitive tests. And we've actually looked at that. So we have data on that. So that's absolutely a thing that can happen. I see. And just returning really quickly to the DNA damage discussion. So just to make sure everyone's following, is what happening in space is basically the radiation is just getting in there and just causing all sorts of just damage to the DNA. And and when we mentioned about inversions and translocations, these are just events that are just happening in the genome from assumed to be from the radiation. Yeah. And you, you know, Radiation can cause these uh, what are called DSBs or double strand breaks in the DNA. And what, what happens is you're getting giant break in the backbone of the DNA. So you're just cutting it in one place, essentially. And so if you cut it in a couple of different places and then you, you can have like DNA sequences being completely inverted. So inversions essentially are where there is a DNA sequence in place, but it's, I guess, essentially inverted. I'm trying to show it. There's no camera, but I'm like trying to show you with my fingers that it's inverted. And translocations are when you can get a piece of DNA that was supposed to be in one location, but it's in a different location now. And so, yeah, those are the sorts of changes that you can expect to happen. There were so many different analyses that you did and so many different measurements and things. I think we did a pretty good job of covering a high level of a lot of different ones. Before we kind of wrap up to to summarize the message of the paper and conclude the episode, are there any other final analyses you want to mention that that you did in the paper that you thought were particularly interesting or have particularly interesting results or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, my my favorites are actually the stuff we didn't talk about. I mean, th- there's a bunch of long term changes, for example. So some of the gene expression changes that persisted, uh, for example, genes that were turned up, upregulated, and they continued to be upregulated post-flight. And some of these genes are actually involved in, you know, hypoxia, immune response, DNA damage response. We also, one of my personal sort of favorite findings that I think is incredibly striking is we observed this protein marker, the ratio of protein ApoB over ApoA1. And that's commonly used as a marker for, you know, predicting stroke. We saw that marker go up in levels. It, It rose specifically in the last six months of the flight period. And so that increase in that marker is associated with increase in stroke. And that was associated with the long duration of the space flight. And these are the types of things we were hoping to sort of find from this study is what's different from when you're doing a typical six-month mission versus you're doing a one-year mission. And what this is telling me is this marker for cardiac injury essentially is going up. And so maybe there is increased risk of stroke as you increase the duration of the mission. And so it's, in a way, it's a pointer to what are the types of things we should be focusing on when we go into deep space and when we have longer missions. We also saw increased markers of inflammation. I mean, Scott, Mark Kelly had just lower levels of inflammation and Scott definitely had higher levels of inflammatory signaling molecules, cytokines, as well as metabolites that are involved in increased, that are typically seen in increased inflammation. And a lot of it was associated with the in-flight period and then kept, stayed elevated and in an increased state of inflammation in the post-flight period as well. And so those are some things to be concerned about when someone is coming back after six months or after a year, maybe those levels will come back to normal at some point. But again, if you're going for longer missions, we have to think about more permanent epigenetic changes that can potentially cause a persistent altered inflammatory state that could have long-term effects on astronauts' health. And this segues, I think, to to kind of my last couple of questions I had for you, which the first would be, what would be your just kind of main summary message of the paper, would you say, and, and all the results from the paper? Well, the good news is that you can absolutely be in space 
for a year without any very, you know, significantly concerning changes to your health. I think we very pleased to find that the message isn't, you know, don't send people to space. The message is, yes, we can send people to space. And NASA has been doing that for a while. One of the main things we discovered is these DNA damage responses. And again, we are exposed to a lot less radiation on ISS. And so we will be exposed to a lot more radiation and that's something to watch out for. And in terms of just big picture as a study, I think we should be doing more of these types of studies. We really need to be profiling astronauts longitudinally. So collecting lots of samples over time and then comparing those astronauts to themselves. We really need to be doing more comprehensive multiomics profiling to understand the biology of space travel. And if we really want to send people to Mars or to the moon, we really need to be doing more of these types of studies in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So my final, my last question was going to be, which will probably be for anyone in the working on space biology and space omics, which I think maybe you already kind of partially answered. Is, is what you think the main questions to answer in space biology and space omics are going to be in the future and, and how we'll, we'll answer them. So you, you mentioned more of these longitudinal studies where you're collecting all this data. Is there anything else on your mind that would be kind of the big questions for us to tackle in the future? I think that's the big thing is how do we get humans? Because that's where NASA is focusing on. I mean, Elon Musk is building his starships to send people to Mars. That's really the big thing is how do we get people to space and to stay there for long durations in increased radiation conditions in a safe manner? How do we know how it affects their health? How can we predict when they're about to get sick? Can we monitor and manage their health? Now that we're establishing the NASA twin study was essentially what we were doing is establishing a baseline of what happens to this one person when he's in space for a year. We need to establish way more of these baselines and then use these baselines and use our continuous monitoring data to try to predict when these people are about to get sick and you know manage and monitor. When you think about going to Mars, again, there will be astronauts with medical training, but there will be limited capacity for the standard sort of medical care that you might get on Earth. And so it's going to be extra important to be able to catch things early. So I would, for example, think about the use of wearables to wearables devices that you know measure heart rate, skin temperature, and other digital vital signs to monitor astronaut health when they're on these long duration missions. And those could give you an indication that something is going wrong before the astronauts maybe feel symptoms. I think innovative sampling technologies like microsampling, where you can get you know, small amounts of blood or small amounts of samples and do assays on those could really benefit these types of longitudinal monitoring studies where you can take a sample, you can just take a finger prick and take a sample every day and then try to measure some analytes on it. And that will really enable this new era of doing precision space biology or precision space health, which I think is where we need to be if we want to reliably and safely send humans to outer space for long duration. Sounds pretty cool to me. And on, on that note, especially of attaching things to people's bodies to help monitor them, we're going to wrap this episode up here, but we are going to come back with Dr. Mishra again, and we're going to talk about her work in leading a wearables study for predicting COVID-19. So stay tuned for that. But for now, thank you so much, Dr. Mishra, for joining for this episode. And also, if anybody wanted to, to follow to kind of stay tuned in to what all you're working on, if you want to just shout that out. And also just thank you very much for agreeing to record this with me, which I'm going to reiterate one more time. This really is a cornerstone 
piece of space biology research. So thanks for agreeing to come talk about this with us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And yeah, looking forward to our next conversation on wearables. And if anyone's interested in my research, I tweet about it at Tejaswini, which is my first name. So you can find me there. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you did, if you learned something new and you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear about it on Twitter. You can join the conversation and keep up with the newest episodes and past guests by following at BioInfoPod. Feel free to tweet at the show or send a DM about anything you liked, didn't like, who or what you'd like to see next, questions for future guests, or just chat about all things bioinformatics and, of course, beyond. It really does make my day to see people share on Twitter when they found the podcast useful. So definitely keep it coming. And again, that's at BioInfoPod. Finally, you can always help out by subscribing to the show, giving it a rating, or just recommending it to a friend who's interested in these topics. Thanks again, and see you next time.